Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here, Stand to Reason, and I appreciate that you've joined me here today for this uh, broadcast, uh, broadcast slash podcast now, I guess. And um, I have, we're going to be taking open mic calls uh, principally today, but I have some thoughts. I just, I just remembered something that happened many, many years ago. When I say many years ago, uh, actually fairly close to when Stand to Reason started, that would be almost 30 years ago. I was in Seattle. I was with Melinda Penner. I was at a Ligonier event, and we were being hosted by them after fashion, or they let us tag along while they had their big event. We were able to have a table there. We had a great relationship with Ligonier uh, those early years, and they gave us some visibility of our stuff material. In any event, uh, there was a, a conversation I had with a waitress uh, that particular weekend, and that conversation made it into the first iteration of the tactics book and also the second uh, because it's a combination of a bunch of stuff that I had been talking about in the book about uh, the tactical game plan and using the Columbo questions to maneuver. And and, um, and I'm, I'm, I think it's called um, the heading is something like Clueless in Seattle or something like that in the book. So I, I'm talking about this conversation, but it just I, I recall a line from that conversation that um, has actually come home to roost in a way that um, I did not expect it to in our culture today. So in that conversation, the way the whole conversation was initiated, she, let's see, the waitress, there were a lot of, there were, it was a conference there at the, some facility near the restaurant such that a whole bunch of conferees were in the restaurant on a regular basis. And so there's a lot of chitter-chatter about theological things. And I happened to mention that with her that I was part of the conference. And um, and at some point there was, I made a comment about, I think that people don't think of religion, think about religion very carefully, and they believe a lot of foolish things when it comes to religion. I don't know if I'd start the conversation that way nowadays, but nevertheless, when I suggested that there were some ideas that people had about religion that were foolish, <clears throat> the waitress was a little bit troubled, and she said, that's oppressive, not letting people think the way they want to think. And um, it, it, and then I said, well, do you think I'm mistaken? And um, she said, well, no. And I said, well, well, if you don't think I'm mistaken, then why are you correcting me? But if you do think I'm mistaken, then why are you oppressing me? So I was playing a little suicide there with her. But I, I, what I noticed, though, is now I'm looking back on it, and I think about her comment that in virtue of me disagreeing with people, thinking their views are foolish, this was an act of oppression. That's oppressive, not letting people think the way they want to think. Now, of course, I was letting anybody back then and even now think however they want to think. But the way she responded was that if you disagree with someone else's view, that is itself an act of oppression. Now, that is the point of view that has come home to roost of late. 
It was odd back then, 25 years ago, for someone to think that a difference of opinion was an act of oppression. A difference of opinion on some spiritual thing, me thinking someone's idea was foolish, was an act of me not allowing them to think the way they want to think, which of course wasn't true. But notice how the the um, understanding of the nature of that dialogue already was being beginning to shift more than twenty five years ago. Now this is this has a name. This move, this maneuver, it's part of critical race theory, which people don't talk about anymore because CRT is like, everybody says, we don't do that, that's a no-no, blah, blah, blah. But now it just shows up under different acronyms like EID, uh, Equity, Inclusion, and Diversity, for example. <clears throat> Nevertheless, it's the same. And the phrase that's used to describe what she did now uh, the phrase that's used now to describe what she did then is called oppression through ideology. Oppression through ideology. Now, when you think about oppression, you think about it in a sense classically or historically. Oppression is when you actually impose some harm on someone else. You act in such a way as to bring that person harm. You restrain them. You throw them in jail without cause. You beat them up for some ridiculous reason. You you you, you disabuse them of rights they may have, uh, or um, you you withhold um, privileges from them. That is, you you actually hurt them in some way, either physically or in terms of lifestyle issues or whatever. That's what oppression was. These are people who are oppressed. Actions oppress people. That's classically how oppression was understood, but not anymore. <clears throat> what is going on now is what the waitress 25 years ago hinted at, that if you—ideas are oppressive. Just believing— or thinking someone else is mistaken is oppressive. Now, of course, for fair-minded people, that's, that sort cuts both directions, right? And that was the point I was making, because even though she's um, chastising me, that's oppressive for what I said, then I asked her, do you think I'm wrong? And she wasn't comfortable in saying I was wrong because she realized immediately that would get her in trouble, which I highlighted with my next question. If you don't think I'm wrong, then why are you correcting me? And if you do think I'm wrong, why are you oppressing me? And of course, I'm just simply using her standard of oppression against her, which would be appropriate if oppression is when someone has an ideology contrary to yours. But of course, as you know, like tolerance and a whole bunch of other things, in our culture today, uh, th th those things are all one-way streets. They are all uh, applicable. <clears throat> excuse me. When the when the critic, or largely a person on the political left, um, is confronting someone they disagree with, the disagreement coming from their opposition is oppressive. But their disagreement with them is not oppression at all. It's just. 
it's ordinary stuff. It's, you know, what sauce for the goose is not sauce for the gander. But when I say this has come home to roost I, uh, in, a, in a vigorous way now, um, I, I, I don't think people quite realize how thoroughgoing this is. I just saw a piece before we started the show, an article about marriage, and the question was, um, is it hateful to hold that marriage is only between a man and a woman? Now, this is a Christian response to the challenge, but notice the nature of the challenge. Is it hateful to do so, to hold this view? So, holding the view is itself considered an act, a hateful action, which hateful action is against those who disagree, which action against those who disagree is oppressive. Because you believe contrary to them, the belief you hold is itself de facto oppression on the person who holds a contrary view. Now, once again, it's, it's a one-way street. doesn't apply coming back. They can say anything they want against you. They can disagree up and down. They can do so in a hostile, nasty manner, and the rules do not apply to them in the same way. Well, all I'm doing here is making an observation about a cultural dynamic, and I don't want you to be taken in by the shell game, because this is what it is. You know, a shell game, that's when you've got like the three walnut shells, and you've got a little bead underneath, and the slate of hand artist is moving them around, and there's money on the line, and if you can find the bead, you win the money. If you don't, you lose yours. And very few people win because the slate of hand is so clever. And that's what's going on here. This is slate of hand. It's a shell game. But a lot of people don't see it. And they are somehow um, compelled to view, to buy the rhetoric that a a con, uh, holding a view contrary to someone else when it comes to the kinds of things we're dealing with in culture that have moral or spiritual significance is itself an act of oppression. So if you believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, you're harming someone else who doesn't share that view. You're harming them. And incidentally, this is something that became really obvious back in 2020. Uh, with the whole Antifa uprising, which is still going on here and there, but it's not as bad as during 2020, on the heels of the uh, the the, the, um, the the event there in Minneapolis there in, in May, and uh, the George Floyd killing, or the death of George Floyd, or the murder of George Floyd, however you want to put it, whatever your perspective is on that issue. But the uprising that came in cities burning, not only Minneapolis, but Portland, Seattle, and lots of other places, different places in Wisconsin, things are related to that. And, um, and the idea was, remember, this is Antifa. This is, this is uh, you know, resist hate, <laughs> you know, stand against hate, right? Stand against fascism, anti-fascism. Yet one would think that the actions themselves were acts of fascistic terror coming from the Antifa crowd. And uh, the rationale was, though, 
these were acts of self-defense. Responding, reacting in cities and bringing violence were acts of self-defense. What were they defending against? They were defending against an ideology that was oppressing. This is their characterization. So if the ideology is oppressing and an attack, a person, in their mind, was justified in reacting, responding in kind. Violence against them, you act in self-defense with violence against others, except for the first violence was ideological, and the response of violence was action. Uh, But it didn't matter, given the rhetoric, because now the oppression is characterized as oppression through ideology. You oppress people with your point of view. You oppress people with your oppressive opinions. This is why, uh, from that perspective, those who hold these oppressive ideas must be silenced. They have to be silenced because their voicing of the opinion is itself a violent act. Now, you can judge for yourself whether it's sound or not. I mean, it seems pretty obvious that it's not. It's just a way of manipulating others in a totalitarian way, ironically, to silence opposition to the views that you hold. And this is what happens all the time. The left has always been totalitarian in its approach to these things ever since the beginning of the Russian Revolution, 1918. I mean, ever since then, and all those who held those leftist views acted the same way. All totalitarian movements are like that. They silence opposition. But this one is clever. We have to silence the opposition because the opposition is oppressive, and the oppression is hurting us. Well, what is the oppression? Their ideas. And therefore, when your ideas are expressed by you, and we perceive that they oppress and hurt us, we can react and respond with physical violence against you, and we are justified in so doing. And every time you see something like, is it hateful to hold that? Is it oppressive to hold that? Notice it's not oppressive or hateful to do something. It's to hold something. It's to believe something not to act in a certain way against a person's person, to act violently in the classical sense of oppression. No, now it's ideas that oppress, and that's why ideas that oppress must be silenced. That's the thinking. That's critical race theory, but even if you don't call it that, It's one element of it. It's still there. It's in play. It's everywhere. It's everywhere, which is why people get canceled, why people get fired for saying or believing the wrong thing. In fact, I I don't have it in front of me. I meant to to print it out. The um, First Liberty, which is an organization like the Alliance for Defending Freedom, out there to, to contend for liberties, especially religious liberties, First Amendment liberties, um, they have a case now where a, a police officer, a young police officer, posted something on his Facebook 
his own personal Facebook regarding uh, the legitimacy of same-sex marriage. He's a Christian, held to the Christian view, and he was fired, ultimately, for it. Uh, he was told he can't post that there. He was told that that's the same, to objecting to same-sex marriage is the same as any kind of racial epithet one might use publicly. That's the way it was interpreted. Notice that he gave an alternate point of view. The alternate point of view was offensive to the reigning powers. It was considered not just as an alternate point of view, but an act of oppressive aggression against others. This is unseemly for a police officer in that jurisdiction under those that leadership, and so they just let him go. You're fired. Now, of course, they're litigating, obviously, because um, the police department can't tell you what you can say in private on your own Facebook. I remember way back many years ago when I was a student at Michigan State University, was it 1971, I think, the spring, or maybe it was the spring of 72, uh, and I hitchhiked with a buddy of mine from Chicago to Washington, D.C., to take part in the anti-war demonstrations there. This was before my Christian days. And um, I did a lot of hitchhiking during those years. Made it all the way to Washington, D.C., and we were all part of the big party there with all the anti-war protesters. But my buddy, Jerry, was a, uh, a fireman in Chicago area, and when it became known that he was planning to take vacation time away from the fire department to go to D.C. and be part of this uh, anti-war demonstration, his fire chief pulled him in and read him the riot act, and he said, no, no person on my fire team is going to go marching against the war in Vietnam. Now, that's pretty intimidating, you know, and uh, but Jerry wasn't intimidated. Here's what he said. Are you going to tell me how to vote, too? Good response. What does any organization like that, what right does any organization like that have to tell you what you can do in your private conscience in your political activities? Posting, marching, posting, voting, they, nothing. That's totalitarian. But now it's run-of-the-mill, and now you got to litigate. And uh, hopefully some of these courses, these will go right to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court can tell everybody, stop doing that. It's wrong. It's a violation of the First Amendment, period. Full stop. Anyway, oppression through ideology. That's what it is. Let's take a break. We'll come back with your calls, your open mic calls here on Stand to Reason. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR Outpost. STR Outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. 
If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org slash donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. All right, back with you on Stand to Reason. Greg Kokel taking open mic calls now. The number for that, by the way, is, uh, well, let me give you the homepage information first. In other words, you could go to our homepage and look under podcasts and where it says live broadcasts, you can select that and then leave a question verbally on your computer that will make it to us and then we'll take it as if you were calling in. The only difference is I don't get to interact with you, but at least you get to weigh in and eventually you'll, uh, if I, when I get to your question and we do get to everything eventually, then we will, uh, I'll give, you'll hear your answer, of course. So uh, it's the homepage, str.org, under podcasts, under live broadcasts, okay? Now, you can also call it in, all right? And if you'd like to do that, 857-342-5787, 857-342-5787, or you could just do 857-DIAL-STR, D-I-A-L-S-T-R, if you want to do it that way. And uh, you can accomplish the same thing by using your phone. So um, we actually have one person sent a lot of questions that were, which is great, no worries, but they're related. And so uh, his name is Troy, reading Hillbilly. Do we get Troy on uh, on STR Ask also? Does he send questions? Yeah, maybe. I thought I, I kind of recognize the, recognize the Reading Hillbilly handle, so to speak. And um, they all are kind of related to the broad question of epistemology. Now, epistemology is the fancy schmancy two-bit word that simply means how we know what we know. Okay, epistemology has to do with knowledge. And how do you justify knowledge? What's the difference between a guess and knowing something? If you have justification for something, you have confidence in the view. That's epistemology. That's an epistemic element, epistemic justification, as opposed to emotional justification or whatever. Um, So this broad area of knowledge in philosophy is called epistemology, and these questions relate to those issues. So let's launch out with, um, let's see, the 15-second one about encouragement and psychological benefit. Um, Troy. Hi, Greg. Wanted to ask a question. Does the fact that we derive encouragement and psychological benefit from gathering with other believers show we are simply brainwashing ourselves? 
does the fact that we derive encouragement and psychological benefit from gathering with others show, in other words, does it demonstrate that we're just brainwashing ourselves? Okay, so a couple thoughts about this, Troy. And first of all, there is, it turns out, and I, you're using this word brainwashing in, in a very general sense, and I'll offer a synonym in a moment, I think, that gets to the point. But I just, just for clarification, there is no such thing as brainwashing. Uh, brainwashing was attempted during the Korean War, and that is where you kind of turn a person into a zombie, and once you say the right word, and a lot of films have played off of this notion, but it's not, it doesn't happen. And when people get involved in cult groups of all sorts, religious and otherwise, they are often, uh, the, the claim is, well, they've been brainwashed. But it turns out people get out of those things. They get out of those enterprises, and they get out of those enterprises by thinking about what they believe. So um, brainwashing aside, maybe a better word would be indoctrinated, because you can have, so you, you're not a person isn't losing their ability to think or to decide, but they are strongly influenced by things around them so that they believe in a certain way. Um, but indoctrination is not something you do to yourself. It's something someone else does to you. So strictly speaking, you're not going to brainwash or indoctrinate yourself. And the question here is, does the fact that we derive encouragement and psychological benefit from gathering together show that, let's put it in the passive voice, we have been indoctrinated, unduly influenced by the benefit that we gain from it. The answer is no, it does not show that. That is, there can't, there's not a correlation necessarily, and that's the nature of the question, between enjoyment that we get hanging out together and the beliefs that we have. Now, can it happen that people believe false things based on the group they hang with? Of course. Happens all the time. But you can also have people who believe true things <laughs> that get tremendous enjoyment out of hanging together. I do woodworking, well, kind of on occasion. I've got a wonderful shop that I don't get to use very often, but I read the magazines, and it's, of course there's a whole brotherhood of woodworkers who, as it turns out, derive encouragement and psychological benefit from gathering together in one way or another. Does that show that they have been somehow indoctrinated in a misleading kind of way into woodworking, that evil thing? No, it doesn't show that at all. It doesn't show it. It may be the case that people are indoctrinated into a false belief, but there's all kinds of legitimate enterprises that are peopled are populated with people who enjoy hanging out together. By the way, this would be true of atheists, skeptic society, humanist society, all kinds of things like that. Do you enjoy hanging out and talking about your things? Sure. Does that show that you're indoctrinated? No. What would show that they're indoctrinated is when they hold to false views in the teeth of all the evidence in virtue of social pressures around them. Okay? If you hold to false view, views in the teeth of all the evidence, contrary to all the evidence, and you hold to them because of social pressures, that would be an evidence of indoctrination, not brainwashing, but indoctrination. And by the way, I think there are lots of people who are falling into that category. 
And this is why when you engage them on volatile issues, they get volatile, screaming and yelling and, and calling names and ad hominems and straw mans and genetic fallacies and all kinds of irrational thinking. Why do they do that? Because they don't have a case. They're just trying to silence the opposition any way they can, which suggests that they're believing their truth in the teeth of contrary evidence, which they won't engage because of social pressures of some sort or ideological pressures to hang on. Okay, so that certainly is a, a real thing. But simply that people gather together in a way that they enjoy what they're doing and being and encouraging it doesn't show that the ideological foundation of their gathering is false. All right? You have to assess based on other information. So there's your first shout, Troy. Now, Troy has another question. This is the 24-second one here about uh, epistemic certainty. I've been struggling with doubt as of late, really recurring seasons. Um, it's kind of a complicated thing. It really centers around certitude. Should I feel so obligated to truth that if I can't have epistemological closure, it would cause me to abandon my faith? Well, Troy, I, uh, I guess my simple answer is no. Uh, we are, if we are committed, use the word obligated here, to truth, um, I think we ought to be committed to finding truth on things that really matter. Um, I don't think we should be that vigorous about it on things that don't really matter. I mean, of course, maybe this isn't the best illustration, but who's the best football player in the NFL? Now, I, you know, there are standards that can be used objectively to determine that, but you're going to have difference of opinion. Some people care a lot about it, but, you know, not much hinges on that. So there may be a truth to the matter, but it's not a weighty truth, right? So I don't know that I'm that committed to truth on those things, but on weightier issues, yes. Uh, my daughter's been having knee problems. She's a volleyball player. She's not doing bad for a 15-year-old. She's on a 17-year-old team and starts on club and varsity, blah, blah, blah. She's getting there. All right, now she's got a knee problem. Well, what's wrong? We want to figure out what it is get a couple of opinions. That matters to me, not so much for volleyball, but for my daughter's health. And uh, so we want to get the right medical. So I want to be committed to truth that I can figure out what's probably the case. Now, certainly, certainty, you is closure, epistemic closure, and I take that to be certainty. Most things you can't know with certainty. Um, well, let me, let me, let me back off a little bit uh, and just clarify something. When we talk about certainty, that actually is a psychological quality. It's a psychological quality where we have no misgivings of any kind as to whether our convictions are sound or true. I'm certain of it. I'm absolutely certain. Now, keep in mind, certainty is not necessity. People are certain about all kinds of things that are false. So certainty doesn't secure truth to you, doesn't secure it. 
Um, it just is an ex, it is a word describing your psychological confidence in the view that you hold. Okay, so um, the question though is, should I feel so obligated to truth that I that if I can't have epistemic closure or certainty, I should abandon my faith? The answer is, of course not. Where are you, what are you going to go to? You abandon one thing to go something else. You should only go to something else if you have more epistemic justification in the second belief than you did in the contrary first belief. That's it. You, you, you have to go with the odds on favorite. There is very little that you're going to be able to uh, affirm of necessity. It must be so, and it cannot be otherwise. Now, there are a lot of people, as I mentioned, who feel certain that their views are accurate. But, of course, there are people who feel this absolute, utter certainty who conflict with other, whose views conflict with other people who feel the same thing about a contrary notion or a contradictory notion. It can't all be right. Um, can all be wrong. It can't all be right. So I'm just distinguishing between certainty as a psychological quality and maybe a certitude as an epistemic notion, or you might, one might say of necessity. Laws of logic follow of necessity. Okay. Um, but applying those formal laws of logic to material circumstances, that's more difficult. You can have a syllogism, you know, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. Well, that follows of necessity if the premises are true, if all men are mortal and Socrates is a man, for example. So it might turn out, you know, you're mistaken about some of that and on one of those premises. Uh, the best we can do is to use the faculties that God has given us to assess the issues before us and come to our conclusions. And sometimes those conclusions are less than necessary or, or, or even psychologically certain, yet we have to make a decision and we got to go with the odds on favorite as far as we're able to tell. And if we can't trust, say, Christianity with epistemic necessity, certainty, however you want to put it, does that mean we abandon it? No, it just acknowledges that some things can't rise to that level of exactness. Okay, that's just the nature of knowledge. Most things we don't know like that. Now, some things, look at, I think, therefore, I am, Descartes, cogito ergo sum, right? That's pretty solid. <laughs> I, I can't be thinking if I'm not being, right? That's pretty straightforward. So that's a solid one. I'm certain about that, and it strikes me as not just psychologically certain, but philosophically necessary, not many things rise to that level, though. And, and with Christians, their confidence in certain aspects of their convictions may vary. Some may be just like 51%. Others may be 98%. Others may say, 100%, I'm absolutely certain there's no possibility 
I'm making a mistake. Okay, so there's a variation there. But I think that's always going to be the case, and there's no requirement for absolute certainty in order for anyone to put a legitimate trust in Christ. I just got back two days ago from Dallas, and uh, did I know with a certainty that the airplane would take off and land safely and deliver me from DFW to LAX? No, but I was 100% all in when I climbed on that plane and strapped in. So I exercised complete trust, even though I didn't have absolute certainty. I was pretty confident. My palms weren't slept, sweating. I wasn't worried. Done this many times, like once a week for the last 30 years, <laughs> at least. Never had a wreck yet. Doesn't mean I won't. But I was still able to exercise the adequate amount of trust to benefit from the thing that I was putting my trust in. And that was when I, that was the plane and the pilot and everybody else involved in the process. And my exercise of trust was evidenced by me getting on the plane and buckling up. So uh, I don't think, even though we may not have epistemic closure on Christianity, we really don't have that in a whole host of things that we take for granted as true. And we live our life accordingly. And so there's no reason, I think, not to do the same with Christianity. And uh, the alternative is what? If you abandon Christianity as the true story of reality, then what do you go to? And what justification do you have to leave the first to go to the second? It's not just what you're leaving. It's what you're going to that matters. And if you're leaving something because you're troubled by some things, you, you're going to have to have more confidence in the legitimacy of the thing you're going to than the thing you're leaving. Okay? And by the way, I'm talking in objectivist terms here when I talk about legitimacy and truth. If all you're interested in doing is just making something up that makes you feel better, and this is what a lot of the deconstruction crowd deconversion crowd, those people who deconstructed and deconverted left, they say, okay, find what you like. Okay, well, that's that's Marx's uh, opiate for the people. Religion is the opiate of the people, is what Karl Marx said. You know, you take your drug, whatever drug you like, and makes you feel better. There's no reality other than the feeling. And this is where a lot of people are headed when they leave Christianity. If you think Christianity is objectively false, then why would you just ab adopt whatever you like? Uh, I mean, unless you are committed to the idea that nothing is objectively true in a meaningful way, so that would be, I guess, a materialist or an atheist or whatever, the, the only thing that's true in a meaningful way is that there is no, no other meaning. That we're just, you know, molecules clashing in the universe, that's the beginning and that's the end. Then you do what you want. You, you, you find your path that makes you feel good, but there are no criterion except for criteria except for just that you're satisfied with it. So the Mother Teresa and uh, the sex trader are on equal grounds there, if that's the way the world actually is. So all to say, if you're going to leave 
Christianity because you think it's objectively false, then you better find something that you believe is objectively true that has more epistemic justification than the Christianity that you left. Okay? Do we take a break here? Yeah, let's do that, and then we'll come back to Troy number three. Did you know Stand to Reason has a YouTube channel? We release a new video each Monday on the topics you care about. Through short, engaging videos, our speakers train you on tactics, offer apologetics tips, answer common theology questions, and address big issues in the world today. Join tens of thousands of other subscribers so you can stay up to date when we release a new video. Just go to youtube.com and search STR videos, all one word, and hit the subscribe button. That's STR videos. Take advantage of this free resource to help you stay informed, encouraged, and equipped as you share your worldview with others. Hey friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. So, uh, continuing on with the Troy show, look at how much attention Troy's getting here. He's sending a bunch of questions that are kind of linked to each other, and uh, he just used our uh, open mic calls feature, homepage, podcast, live broadcast, boom, 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 and there you are, or 857-342-5787. So, uh, let's go to uh, Troy number three here on studying apologetics and philosophy. It's me again, Troy. Wanted to ask a question about uh, philosophy and apologetics. When studying apologetics and philosophy, it seems as though 100% certainty is unachievable. Uh, apologists and philosophers alike seem to caveat everything with if this is true or if this isn't true. Does the Bible require 100% certainty that God does exist? Well, this is a thank you, Troy. And this is a, a somewhat. Um, of a repeat, a little bit of what we are seeing with the last question, although there's an angle here with the Bible. Um, apologetics, defending the faith, philosophy, which is a tool to help us do that. I have degrees and I have advanced degrees in both fields, by the way, and they're both fabulous. I mean, they really help me a lot. Um, in fact, I wouldn't be able to answer some of these questions about epistemology without my background in philosophy. But uh, yes, it does seem as though 100% certainty is not achievable in most cases. And again, remember that certainty is a psychological quality, but a lot of times it's associated with very, very high irrefutable justification, okay? And uh, and so, gee, that, that eludes us, doesn't it, in, on many issues, okay? And so then the question comes, comes but does the Bible require that? Um, 100% certainty that God does exist. And I, I don't know, it, 
well, it just seems to me, if we acknowledge that this kind of certainty is probably going to elude us, why would we think that the Bible requires such a thing? It certainly doesn't say that. Um, and uh, what it requires is that we put our trust in God. And in order to put our trust in God, we must first believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. That's Hebrews chapter 11. And so that, that's like a foundational, um, logically prior state of affairs, right? Um, we have to believe that God is real, and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him, in order for us to seek Him and be re- thus rewarded. Now, of course, we could be mistaken on that, but uh, to believe something is to hold that the thing you believe is actually so. It's to believe that your point of view is true. It reflects the facts of the matter. That's what a belief is. Okay? Now, we could be mistaken on that. There's a difference between belief and knowledge. Knowledge would be justified belief, uh, a true belief that is justified. You're not just believing it by accident, but you have reasons for it and good reasons for it. Okay? But um, when it comes to the issue, though, of of uh, of God's existence, which is the way this particular question is phrased, um, 100% certainly that God does exist. I, my own convictions approach that. And the reason it approaches 100% certainty, again, psychological, I, I can't, I cannot be disabused of the belief that I have that God exists. And um, the reason is, is I know too much. If I were to deny God's existence, I would have to be affirming. Okay, notice I said last segment that if you leave one thing, you have to go to something else. You, you know, I guess technically you could stay in the middle on some things. But it, so other things, though, if you deny certain things, then it's the, the, there's, some, uh, there's certain things entailed in the denial that you can't escape. So if I say God doesn't exist, and I know that the universe came into existence at some point in the past, which I do know that, that the universe is not eternal, I do know that. And there's a whole re- bunch of reasons why I could tell you this is a secure piece of knowledge but God doesn't exist, that means the universe had no cause. It came in existence out of nothing for no reason and f- with no cause. The universe had no cause. And that makes no sense. That makes no sense. We know the universe is not self-existent. If it was, there wouldn't be a problem. It's eternal. But we know it's not self-existent for a bunch of reasons, philosophical and scientific. That means it came into existence, and if it came into existence, it must have had a cause, because the idea of nothing creating something is nonsense. It is it is self self um, sort of self-attesting <laughs> that it's non-test. Just reflect on it. You see, this out of nothing, nothing comes. That's the uh, basic concept. And so I would have to, if I rejected that God existed, I would have to say the universe 
nothing caused the universe. No thing caused the universe. And then no thing caused the order of the universe. And no thing caused consciousness to come into existence. And, uh, and no thing caused objective morality. Now, of course, if you're an atheist, you're going to say, well, evolution caused that. And it, well, it didn't cause objective morality, it can only cause subjective, s subject oriented ideas of right or wrong. But it certainly can't ground objective morality. Incidentally, I go through a lot of pains to make this point in the new book coming up in June called Street Smarts. And you can go to Amazon.com, look it up, and pre order it. Okay, so there's a shameless plug in June. Oh, maybe it's, this is going to be after June? Or well, maybe it's already out. Amy's, you know, swatting my hands here with the ruler because I I may have put a date on, a time mark on this. Nevertheless, get it one way or another. Because I go through a lot of uh, trouble to show that the problem of evil, if it's real and everyone knows it is, must, it requires that God exist. It's the atheist fatal flaw. That's the name of the title, or the name of the uh, chapter, which I, I deal with that. So all I'm saying is, if there is no God, all of these radically counterintuitive things must obtain in virtue of there being no God. And this is unbelievable to me. Not a snowball's chance, right? Therefore, God must exist. And so these are the reasons my confidence in God's existence is so high. So um, when it comes to the question of God's existence, now it's not the same as the authority of the Bible and, and the existence of Jesus and the resurrection and the miracles and all the theology that relates to that. I'm just talking about God's existence as a personal God here, because only persons do stuff, make things happen. Agent causation is the technical term, requires an agent, a someone to make decisions to cause other things to happen. And God becomes the ground, the rationale, the reason for all those things that I mentioned, the existence of the universe, the order of the universe, the uh, the existence of consciousness in an otherwise material universe, and the existence of the kinds of moral obligations that make an, a, a real genuine problem of evil possible. Okay, so... Uh, you know, I think you can have very high confidence, at least in the existence of God, which is the foundation. It's the starting point. In the beginning, God. It's the first part of our story. Uh, but the Bible does not require that. Going back to a previous illustration, what it requires is belief and trust. Act as if that God exists and is a rewarder of those who seek him. So we seek him to get whatever reward is in store. And I'm not just talking carrots here, like we get goodies. The reward is himself. We seek him, we know him, we are rewarded by the friendship that he provides and things that go along with that. And he's got other things prepared for us who love him and follow him. So hopefully that answers that question. Um, you know what? 52. Yeah, we got five minutes here. Let's uh, let's go to the next one here. Why isn't truth of God's existence 
as self-evident as math. Let's do that because it, it's a nice transition here. It's a 25-second. I'm sorry. Yeah, 25-second. From Troy. Nope, not that one. Not that one. Not that one. It's, uh, there it is. Truth of God's at the very top. Troy. That's it. 25 seconds. Got it. A mathematical proposition such as 2 plus 2 equals 4 seems self-evidently true, and no one really argues it. Why isn't the truth of God's existence like this? Is saying it's sinful repression the equivalent of them saying, being the unbeliever, we aren't smart enough to understand the science? Well, this, of course, is kin to the last discussion I just had, Troy, with you on the other question. There's some new wrinkles here, but um, uh, I guess there are people who are going to deny that 2 plus 2 equal 4. I was in a debate with somebody once at uh, Oregon State University on the issue of relativism, and 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 uh, he wouldn't even affirm acknowledge that the that the number one was real necessarily i'm trying to think back in this debate because you can't <laughs> it was goofy he was not cooperative at all in debate in our cross-exam kind of thing but uh just because a thing is self-evident doesn't mean that everyone's going to affirm it sometimes people have agendas right and so they're going to deny self-evident truths now it turns out if the thing is genuinely self-evident, that deep down inside they're going to believe it, maybe on a subconscious level, okay? Um, that's a very particular uh, kind of belief, a belief that, uh, a dispositional belief, where it's held deeply but not consciously where. Now, in Romans chapter 1, it seems to be making reference to that kind of thing. It, and here is what, what Paul writes in Romans 1. He says, uh, for the wrath of God, that's God's mad about something, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. Oh, there it is, what he's mad about. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness? So human beings are taking what's obviously true, and because they are unrighteous, as Jesus puts it, they love the lie, the darkness, rather than the light, because their deeds were evil, John 3, they are going to suppress the truth, okay? Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So Paul is saying punishment's coming because people are irresponsibly and in rebellion suppressing obvious truth. I got in a fuss with Ed Fesser, who's a wonderful philosopher over at Pasadena College a number of years ago on this issue, making this point that atheists are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. It is the fool that has said in his heart, there is no God. Why are they a fool? Because it's obvious that God is real. And deep down inside, they know that, or else God would not be able to hold them accountable for it. Yet Paul says, speaking for God here, they are without excuse. Now, the point I made with Fesser was that I think this is a dispositional belief. It's, it's you know, it's like held deeply but not consciously aware of, and so I think that atheists can think of reasons why they say there is no God, and that persuades them at one level. 
Okay, and they seem to be genuinely holding that. So I'm not calling them liars. I'm saying that something else is actually going on. And uh, and I, if if I'm right about Paul's comment, it is sinful repression. But it's not saying they're not smart enough to understand the science. They understand the science. They just don't think the science leads where where I suggested it leads. All the counterintuitive things you have to hold if there is no God, well, they hold to those. And that surprises me, to be honest with you. Uh, nevertheless, it's where they're at, all right? It is, according to Paul, an evidence of sinful repression of what is obvious, and I gave reasons why it's so obvious to me, I have a very high degree of certainty regarding God's existence. All right, there are other things I'm not so certain about. <laughs> this one, pretty solid, all right? Hey, Troy, thanks for uh, letting us do a whole show with you. I know you've got even more questions, but uh, we'll have to wait with them for another time. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye.